God for Renee Jewell, for the praise team, for the band, for the choir, for our technical guys, all the folks that have put all this together tonight. Let's give the Lord praise for that. Thank you, Mark. Well, amen. I hope that when I get through with this message tonight, you don't walk out and say, I'm glad I came for the music. I wish I'd left before the message started. <laughs> I'm going to uh, tiptoe around a few landmines in this message and um, want to say some things that are seasoned by convictions of my own heart, what I believe the Word of God teaches as far as balance. I think the Bible is a balanced book, and, but uh, also try to be helpful. Uh, and so I hope that you'll listen with my heart um, about what I want to do. I want to talk about Samson tonight. What does it mean to be set apart? Samson, for most of his life, could stand up to the enemy, but he couldn't stand out because of his own personal choices. He was a Nazarite, so that made him stand out. He was a representative of the living Lord, but the reality was he played around the fringes all of his life. He, he tried to see how close he could get to the fire without getting burned. And so he never distinguished himself as he could have if he had walked with God in the way that he had been called and set apart to walk with God. Um, when Jim approached me last year and said that B&H was interested in doing a teenage version of Courageous Teens, I was a little reluctant at the beginning, but uh, I began to think about 15 years of doing youth ministry and uh, trying to call kids out to be better and greater uh, than their peers and to stand up and to make a difference. And I look across the landscape of this country today and know of 75 young men and women that are in ministry in some capacity that came out of those 15 years. And I saw many of them be courageous. And uh, one of my prayers for that book is that God would use it to raise up another generation of courageous teenagers. Uh, that they wouldn't wait until they get older, that they would make choices now uh, to be courageous. Uh, this past week, uh, I was stunned because I got noticed that it was number seven on the bestseller list, and I was just like, really? That many teenagers read? <laughs> and uh, no offense, guys. <laughs> no offense at all. I know, and, and our teenagers are going through it. You're still going through it on Wednesday nights? Just finished up. Okay, you went through it pretty quick, didn't you? Just, did, you hit the high, did you get the cliff notes on it? Is that what you did? Um, but I, I know we need role models. Uh, Samson's life is in the context of the 12th century B.C. The uh, Philistines have been uh, in charge for about 40 years. They've run rampant over the land. Uh, it's amazing that a guy that ended up making so many bad decisions takes up one-fifth of the book of Judges. But you got to remember, in Judges, they're, they're in a downward spiral. Every time they sin, their sin gets deeper. 
And of all the judges that it could have been a great judge, Samson was the poorest of them all. Others had delivered the nation, but he never really delivered the nation from their enemies. He arrives on the scene after three minor judges that have been serving since the time of Jephthah. And God raises him up, but he doesn't quite meet the standard. If you'll turn to Judges chapter 13. Judges 13. And I had no intention of doing this with this message. But when I was in the mountains a few weeks ago and studying these last passages, I mean, God just drove into my heart. I I don't know if this ever happened to you, but there's sometimes when you read the Bible, and it's almost like you look at it and say, I don't think that was there the last time I read that. I mean, God just kind of lifted some things out of this scripture for me that I needed to see and I believe we needed to hear. And so I want to read in verse 1. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And then he gives the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord says to her, Therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son." And no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Verse 24. Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. He was set apart. Now, We have a lot of weird interpretations about what set apart means. It doesn't mean being weird or strange. It does mean being distinctively different, wholly other. Here's what John says it means in 1 John uh, chapter 2. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but it's from the world. James says it this way in James 4, 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, it is important to remember that when the Bible talks about separation, it, it always refers to separation from sin, but not separation from sinners because that would be impossible, (laughs) because all of us are sinners. But Jesus hung around with the worst people of the society, people that were Jews, but were prostitutes and drunkards and tax collectors, the people looked down on by the society. Jesus didn't hang around with a lot of religious people, because the religious people drove him crazy. They were always judging him and criticizing him. They would go in their synagogues and teach about God and, and teach the law of God, and there's the Son of God sitting in their midst, and they don't even know it's him. So they had religion. Paul talks about it as a form of power without godliness. 
Set apart does, means to be set apart from sin. In other words, I don't allow my life to be tainted by sin, but I identify with the need to identify with sinners, with where they are and with who they are. And if we don't have that mentality, we will end up in a gospel ghetto. By that I mean we'll just be in our own little hood with our own little friends and our own little gang and we'll never get outside of our walls. Now here's where one of my great fears is. One of my great fears is with so many books out about parenting and so many books and videos and everything else, we've got so many ideas and so many perspectives. But my fear is we're not raising a tough generation. We're not raising a strong generation. Our, our boys are effeminate and our girls are masculine. And we're not identifying what it means to be godly. And there's confusion and uncertainty about what it means to stand strong for Christ. And, and I have a fear. Now, don't turn me off until you let me get all the way to the end, okay? I have a fear that if we're not careful in trying to protect our kids from the world, that they spend all their lives hiding behind mommy's skirt and they never learn how to stand on their own. My wife did a much better job of parenting our girls than I did. First of all, because she's a woman and two girls, and there are just some things that when you're the dad, you stay out of that conversation, you just kind of leave the room and go, okay, see you later. <laughs> just walk on off. But my wife had a goal. First of all, we had prayed for kids. We had uh, tried to have kids for years and couldn't have them. We didn't know if we would ever have kids. One of my reasons that I have a passion about dealing with the abortion issue is because before we found out uh, we were pregnant with Aaron, uh, we were in the process of adopting a child out of Orlando. It was in a private adoption. And six months into that pregnancy, the girl aborted the baby. And so there was a child that my heart had begun to turn toward that never got a chance to breathe the breath of life. So when God gave us kids, it could have been very dangerous for us to become smothering and to be overly protective and, and to keep them in some kind of bubble where uh, they wouldn't learn how to grow up. Ter Terry's goal and, and my goal, but Terry did a better job at this than I did, was to raise strong girls who could be independent thinkers. Now, if you've ever been in our house, we have strong girls who are independent thinkers. Uh, they are not who they are because their dad's a pastor. They are who they are because they have their own walk with God. And I mean, they are strong thinkers. And in our house, we have strong opinions. My wife does not believe that her role is to be the silent, submissive, never tell you what I think, 
wife. And I have to tell you, for that I'm grateful because she knows my blind spots better than I know them. And my kids know if I'm being a hypocrite, too. My kids know if I'm saying one thing and doing something else. I remember Ron Dunn telling the story about when he was 17 years old, he was preaching a revival, and he went out to this little church. In fact, he told this story at Sherwood. Uh, he went out to this little church out in the country and, and did a message on the family. And this guy walked up to him that was in his 40s and said, uh, Son, how old are you? He said, 17. He said, Think that's a good message on the family? He said, Yes, sir. Felt pretty good about it. He said, You married? I said, No, sir. I said, Got any kids? He said, No, sir. He said, When you get married and have kids, you'll throw that sermon away. And Ron went back 35 years later to that same church, and that same man was there, now an old senior adult. And he walked up to Ron on Sunday morning and said, did you throw that sermon away? And Ron said, yes, sir, I sure did. Or as Charles Lowry says, I used to have three theories and no kids, and now I've got three kids and no theories. <laughs> I've never preached a lot of messages on parenting because I'm not finished being a parent. I preached three messages on the family in my first 20 years here because my kids were not raised. And I did not want people looking at my kids and saying, well, now he said Christian kids are supposed to do this, this, and this. And then my kids become the poster child for criticism. Because that happens in the church a lot. Well, your kids don't do this, and your kids don't, and your kids are not like this. Because I'm going to tell you, 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 when you do that, everybody that doesn't like you starts to use your kids as a way to get to you. So the best way to do is just avoid the subject. Just preach the Word. So I, I didn't. I preached three messages on the family. I couldn't even remember the titles of a couple of them. I don't think, it's my opinion, which I highly respect, I don't think withdrawing our kids from the world raises strong kids. Uh, in fact, if we're not careful, we'll produce 12th century Christian mysticism, which says to get in a hole and get holy, go off in a cave and be godly. But Jesus said we're to go into the world. The scripture says we're to be in the world, but not of the world. He says, I send you out to the wolves. You got to remember that the, that the disciples, most of them were probably teenagers when they were following Jesus. By the day of Pentecost, most of the disciples, except maybe for Simon Peter, were probably high school age. These were not seasoned people. They had been working all their life. They had grown up, and they left their families at 13 and 14 years of age to follow Christ and to walk with Him and to ultimately give their lives. Those are the kind of kids I think we ought to be producing, people that are willing to go and do whatever God tells them to do. Because here's, here's the thing. If, if we can be so separate, we never have to make any choices. We never are required to act and walk by faith. And we don't teach our kids faith. We teach our kids safety in a system. 
And, and then when the kids finally get a taste of freedom, they don't know how to live. They don't know how to function. Now, trust me, in 15 years of youth ministry and 23 years of pastoring, I've watched people try to keep their kids from ever hearing anything or seeing anything and put some kind of bubble around them, and they go off to college, and they just go hog stinking wild because it's their first exposure to the world, and they don't know how to handle it because now they're, not out from, now they're out from under your roof. They don't have any influence. They can't come home and talk to you about what they've seen and what they've heard, and they're freaked out by it, and they cave into the pressure. I never required that our girls have only Christian friends. I mean, who's going to reach a student better than another student? I mean, if the only friends they got are Christian friends, and all they're going to do, I mean, they, they can do that in a holy huddle. I wanted them to know how to relate to the world and how to be salt and light in the world. I think that denies a command if we separate too much. And I, I believe that isolationism is a distortion of biblical separation. It's a denial of going into all the world. We are called to raise strong kids, not codependent kids on us. Now think about it. You say, well, I'm trying to be a good Christian parent. Let me tell you what kind of parents Jesus had. He was missing for a day before they realized it. I just want to raise a godly young man. Joseph and Mary. Um, where's Jesus? I thought you knew where he was. You know who he was with? I don't know. And they have to go back and find him. And here's a 12-year-old confounding the religious leaders with his wisdom, which says his mom and dad taught him something, but it didn't say that they put handcuffs on him and said, walk with us side by side and don't ever leave us. Sit with us every day, every moment. Don't ever get around. Don't ever be with anybody else. Jesus went off and did what God told him to do. Now, <laughs> you see, if, if our kids are so weak that they can't defend their faith, then something's wrong with the formula. They need to be able, they need to be equipped to be what God called them to be. I just think it's a denial of the principles of the Word, the power of the Spirit, and a lack of faith to think that if my kids know lost people, that somehow they'll become sinners like those lost people are. Well, then maybe you need to do a better job of distinguishing between lost and saved and what that looks like. I'm afraid that too many parents try to control their kids rather than raise their kids. Now, here's a couple of points here before I keep moving. You don't throw lambs to wolves, but you don't keep warriors locked up in a bedroom. You don't throw your little lambs to the wolves, but you don't keep warriors locked up in a bedroom. Listen, folks, we are called to train soldiers for Christ, warriors for Christ. Men and women of strong faith and steel and backbone that can stand against the pressures of this world, that can say no when they say no, need to say no and yes when they need to say yes. And, and every time Jesus, now remember, let's go back. These were teenagers who were the disciples. 
Average life expectancy at the time of Christ wouldn't have been more than the early 40s. So they got married when they were 12 and 13 years old. By the way, don't do that. First of all, you hadn't saved enough money to pay for that wedding. I've only got 85 more payments to pay for the weddings. But every time Jesus lectured the disciples, he put them in a lab. He taught them about faith, and then he sent them out on a boat and sent a storm. Every time Jesus, you find when you read the Gospels that Jesus would teach them a principle, and then he would put them out there to see if they had learned it. By the way, the communists have learned that. A communist, when he's converted to communism, he will get just enough to go out and stand in front of a factory and start telling people that they need to become communists, and they beat them up, and then they go back to the communist party and say, we don't have enough information. These people are killing us. You got to tell us more so we can go out and defend communism. So what they do, they learned a lesson from Jesus, believe it or not. You teach them, and then you put them in a position where they have to test their faith. All right, I'll give you a prime example. We got some guys over here that play with SCA in football, and I know for a fact that they've played in some games against some people that have called some of our African-American players names that should not be mentioned in public. Hey, that's a test for them. What do we want to say? We're only going to play people that all believe in Jesus and we get down across the line from them and say, I'm about to love you in Jesus' name. <laughs> or do we want to teach them how to act when they're reviled and persecuted? To equip them to live the life when it's challenged and threatened. Now, Here's what I know somebody's thinking. Well, you know, you can say all that. You sent your kids to a Christian school and they went to a Christian college. Yes, they did. Not everybody at SCA was saved when they went there. Not everybody was saved when they left. Part of SCA is being a mission. That means we let lost people come to our school. Why do we let lost people come to our school? Why don't we just fill it up with a bunch of Christians and we can sing Kumbaya and forget all the other classes? We do it because a part of the witness of that job is to be a witness. And it's for Christian students to be an example to other students. When my girls went to a Christian college, there were all kinds of folks there. Some of them there because their mom and dad sent them. Some of them there because they got scholarships to play baseball or soccer or something else. Not everybody loved Jesus there. But we put them in positions to make choices. I can remember when Aaron was young. Can I tell this story? I, I can remember when Aaron was really young, and, and she came home almost every day from school. It was middle school, wasn't it? Wasn't it middle school? She came home almost every day from middle school and said, Mom, please homeschool me. I don't have any friends. I don't like anybody. And Terry just looked at her and said, Toughen up and go back. Can I tell you something? I've got a strong daughter living in Los Angeles right now who has stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with people whose morals and values are personally repugnant to her, but she stands on her faith. I've got a strong younger daughter 
who's about to move 17 hours away to South Africa to put herself in a position to be a light and a witness. I'm not one of those dads. Terry is not one of those moms that says we want all of our kids to be in our circle so we can be mother and father hen and rooster and watch them every step of their life. Now, I know, I don't say there's anything wrong with your family all being together, but if you don't love God more than your father, mother, or brother, or sister, or your own life also, you cannot be his disciple. Ladies and gentlemen, if you can't let your kids leave, you love your kids more than you love God, and God's going to discipline you for that. Better be careful about what parameters you tell God you need for your children. They're not your kids. They're the Lord's kids. They're on loan to you to be a steward and a representative of Christ in their lives. I've watched and I've listened as Aaron has worked for years in a very secular environment surrounded by people who have chosen a gay lifestyle. Who have, She has watched things that were been repugnant to her and been a witness in that environment. The end of the day, I think you have to ask yourself the question, do you trust God? Or do you think you can do a better job with your kids than God can? Now, all of that was to get me to this. <laughs> I can't speak with certainty, but here's what I believe. Here's what God showed me. Samson's mom was barren and finally had a child, an only child, a son. And she wanted him to always be mama's little boy. So I think one of the issues with that family was overprotective. Overprotective. By the way, that describes my mother to a T. My mom could smother anything in her path. She didn't want me to do anything, be anywhere, know anybody. My my mom and dad had no social skills at all. They never went out to eat with anybody. Every meal was at home unless we went to the hospital to eat lunch on Sunday. I mean, I'm riding in the car going, We're going to the hospital to eat Sunday lunch. (laughs) Same thing they're feeding dying people. (laughs) Somehow this doesn't feel good. But because I was adopted, I think my mother was so scared that somehow I would get out from under her control. And can I tell you something? Listen to me. Part of my rebellion against God in my middle school and high school years that scarred me was trying to break free from a mom who would not take her hands off and let me learn. And so my rebellion was a reaction to her over-parenting and being overprotective and not Let me trip up and fall and say, now, why did you trip up and fall? Let me teach you a lesson here. Her thought was, if he never trips and falls, then he never gets hurt, then he never has any issues. 
The truth was, I just found ways to sneak around her. And by the way, when you're overprotective at some point, you lose the respect of your children. And you begin to question if they love you or if they're just concerned about themselves. Secondly, it's obvious that the mom and the dad were spoiling Samson. So he was self-indulgent. Remember what he says when he, he's on his way and he sees this woman and he says, get her for me. She looks good to me. So here's a guy who's driven by lust, who's driven by passion, and he's not been trained how to look for a godly woman that would fit with a Nazarite and be consistent with his life. He just sees a woman and goes, man, looks good. Get her for me. And the parents, it's not exactly stated here, but the parents said, well, son, whatever you want, that's what we'll get you. By the way, you give your kids whatever they want, and you're going to spoil them, and you're going to ruin them. Some of you stand in line to get the latest technology for your kids because, God forbid, they would go to school and not have the newest whatever. What's going to happen when you can't do that anymore? When they have to make it on their own. When they have to figure out how to pay their bills. When they have to figure out how to make choices. When they have to get up and decide if they're going to go to church and you're not there to get them out of bed and make them go to church. When you've been so self-indulgent with them and so spoiling of them and gotten them everything that they think that the answer to life is to get all the credit cards you can and run them up and get 125% of your income committed to debt where you'll never get it paid off because mom and dad gave me everything I want. Since they're not giving it, I'll just get it myself and I'll be in debt and pay minimum payments for 35 years. By the way, we have a generation full of people that are that way. who wanted immediate gratification because mom and dad gave them what they wanted. I, I, I don't know why I remember this. I remember when <laughs> some of you are not going to get this. is going right, to go, go right past you. I remember when we asked God to help us find a Teddy Ruxpin. <laughs> Anybody remember Teddy Ruxpin? You know, had the little tape player in it, little bear. You know, had a little tape. You can see Aaron wanted a Teddy Ruxpin. So, I mean, we asked God, Walmart, Toys R Us, everything. We're trying to find a Teddy Ruxpin. I'm just, and I think about that now and I say, really? <laughs> really? I went to that much trouble for a Teddy Ruxpin. It was broken in two weeks. This arm just kind of <laughs> hung like this and the tape got, you know, but we had to do it because everybody's kids wanted a Teddy Ruxpin at the time. Well, that's a Power Rangers or Buzz Lightyear or whatever it is now. <laughs> Donald Campbell said, Manoa and his wife desperately wanted to fulfill their parental responsibilities and raise their child to honor and serve God. That is why Manoa was initially motivated to ask, how shall we bring him up? All evidences seem to indicate this husband and wife were concerned about doing their best as godly parents for Samson when, why then was Samson's life and career so checkered? The answer can only be that Samson continually made wrong choices. Now look at this next sentence. To raise a dedicated and godly child requires godly responses by both the parents and the child. 
When one or the other is lacking, failure often results. I want to give you 10 principles to ponder, and then I may just quit because I've got about 20 more minutes, and I may just need to just stop here. 10 principles to ponder. Some of these are longer than others. Uh, and, and by the way, before we get into these 10 principles, let me just, uh, in youth ministry, uh, Garrett, you know this, Stephen Alex, you know this. I mean, we, we had great kids that had lousy parents. I mean, some of the best kids I had, their mom and dads didn't even come to church. Some of the worst kids I had, their parents were there every time the doors were open. You see, it goes back to that sentence. It requires a godly response by both parent and child. But because a kid has lousy parents doesn't mean they have to be lousy kids. Ultimately, it comes down to the choices we make. And it goes back to what we've said, what Tom Ellick has said here, what I've said. It's the places you go. It's the books you read. It's the people you meet. It's the music you listen to. It's the television you watch. Help you make wise choices. Bad company corrupts good character. And so if you let your kids hang around with lost people, you better make sure that you're reinforcing the right things in that and that you've got the upper hand in the influence. I will say again what I've said before. You need five people on the board of directors of your children. Five adults who are weighed in the balance and found faithful that your kids can go to from the time they're young until they're mature. Probably ought to be a pastor or a youth minister. It ought to be a Sunday school teacher or a coach. It ought to be both of you as parents, and it ought to be somebody else, an aunt, an uncle, a neighbor, a friend, somebody that, th that they know these are the people I seek counsel from. Now, I can tell you, until he died, Ron Dunn was on our girls' list. Tom Ellip is on our girls' list. Our, our girls would seek counsel from Tom Ellip today. And that goes back to when our girls were young and when we would go out and eat, we included our children in those meals. We didn't send them off somewhere else to play video games. They sat at the table with us to hear the conversations that were going on among godly men giving their influence. It's a second influence. You need those people on the board. Are, are you positioning your children to have those kind of people of influence on the board? the people that will speak wisely, that will speak the Word of God into their lives, to put them on the board, on the board of directors. By the way, the father in Luke chapter 15 is an image of God, and neither one of his sons were worth shooting. One of them went to a pig pen and squandered his inheritance. At least he had the sense to come back. The elder brother stayed right there, did everything his dad told him to do, and had a sorry attitude. All right, principle number one. Am I raising a child to be godly or one that I hope won't embarrass me? Am I raising a child to be godly or one that I hope won't embarrass me? I'll just go back to Terry and I for a moment. 
we never said to our girls, never implied to our girls, don't do this because I'm the pastor. That would imply that I want them to act a certain way so it doesn't look bad for me. Because you don't do it because we're Christians. Am I doing this because I'm trying to raise a godly child or one that won't embarrass me? Secondly, am I leading by example or expecting them to do what I say but not what I do? Am I leading by example or am I expecting them to do what I say and not what I do? Number three, am I living a set-apart life or am I playing around the fringes while expecting my kids to toe the line? In other words, do you have a different standard for yourself than you have for your children? And again, that gets down to, let me tell you what that gets down to. That gets down to pride and image. If the standard you set for your kids is higher than the standard you set for yourself, it gets down to your pride and your image that you're worried about, not them. And that ultimately gets down to the worship of self. It's a dangerous place to be. Number four, am I one thing at church and another thing at home? Am I one thing at church and another thing at home? There are a lot of people that walk away from the Lord because their parents were one thing at church and another thing at home. And there's only one word for that, and that's being a hypocrite. Next one is a big one. Is my home a safe environment to discuss gray areas? Is my home a safe environment for discussion? Can your kids come talk to you about anything? We said to our kids time to time as they were growing up, here are the rules, here's what we believe, here's where we stand. But if you ever get away, you can always come home. Now, every child is going to test if they can have a conversation with you or if they're going to get a lecture from you. I'm more of the, let me give you a lecture. Let me give you 14 reasons why you don't need to do this. Terry's more of the, let's have a conversation. And I can tell you that I watched Terry through the years take our kids and just sit on the, you know, she would go and tuck the kids in. We would all say goodnight. She'd go and tuck the kids in. And there were times when it would be like an hour, an hour and a half. And I'm going, what are you doing? And it's just in that environment, our girls found it safe to talk to their mom about some things that were between girls and a mom. And she was able to influence things they wouldn't talk about with me because they're girls. And there are just some things that moms need to say to girls and dads need to say to boys. Now, that doesn't mean that that's an exclusive line. 
but is your home a safe place? If your child asks a moral question, if your child asks a question about pornography or premarital sex, is it safe for them to bring that subject up to you? Because if it's not, here's what you've done. You've made it a subject that cannot be discussed in your home from a biblical perspective, and so they'll get their opinion from the world on what they ought to think about that subject. You ought to be the first place they come, not the last place they come, to talk about those kind of things. Where they're safe to ask the question, and where you don't assume or blow up because they ask the question. Number six, am I driven by fear of what others will think if my kids aren't perfect? There's a person on Twitter that I follow called Pastor's Kids Problems. It's hilarious because I just see so many pastor's kids in this. Am I driven by fear of what others will think if my kids aren't perfect? Guess what? The chances are your kids aren't perfect. Now, I know you think they are. But the chances are they're not. And the chances are everybody around you is thinking, you've got to be kidding. (laughs) You think your kids are perfect. You should know what I know. Go ask their Sunday school teachers if they're perfect. (laughs) Number seven, do I have unrealistic expectations for my kids? Do I have unrealistic expectations? Can I just tell you, let let me just make a general application here. There's about 50 that I could make. Just because you were an athlete growing up doesn't mean your kids have to be athletes. All right? Am I making unrealistic expectations about my Not every kid ought to go to college. I know we're in this system. Everybody's got to go to college. Hey, can I tell you something? I need somebody to fix my plumbing from time to time. We had to hire a guy to do some electrical work at our house this week. If I'd done it, I would be fried and laying down front right now (laughs) nobody told me the first time I tried that turn the switch off before you touch that wire (laughs) I need somebody that understands that not everybody has to go to college not everybody has to be an athlete just an example when I played baseball growing up I may have told you, I think I have told you this before. When I played baseball growing up, I did not know for two years that I had bad eyesight. And so for two years, I needed glasses and didn't have them. Well, when you're playing baseball and you can't see the ball, you swing and miss a lot. It wasn't that I had a soft spot for the ball. It's that I couldn't see it until it was past me. And I remember standing with my dad in the drugstore standing by Bill Reed, who was a pharmaceutical salesman, who was one of my dad's best friends. And I remember asking my dad when I was nine years old, Dad, are you coming to the game? I played for Baber Firestone. I said, are you coming to the game tonight? He said, I'll start coming to your games when you start starting. My dad came to one Little League baseball game and then got mad at me because I quit. Hey, can I tell you something? If your dad doesn't care if you play, why should you care? 
And it's pretty hard when your dad still holds records. My dad today still holds records at his high school in football and basketball. He's still the number two all-time in his high school in assist in basketball. He completed 24 of 27 passes one night for 289 yards in, 19, in the 1930s and intercepted three balls playing safety on the defense. Now, when they put you into football and they say, okay, what, what, well, my dad played safety. All right, try to play safety. And they put a guy up against you that's five seconds faster than you, it doesn't work. And so I quickly lost an interest in playing competitive sports. I love sports, but I lost an interest in it. And I want to tell you why I lost an interest in it. My dad had unrealistic expectations. He wanted me to be him. First of all, I was adopted, so I didn't have any of his genes. <laughs> if I'd been Archie Manning's son, I might, you know, this could be a different story. I'd be out of here. Uh, but... <laughs> But secondly, that's not what God called me to do. And that's what, not what God equipped me to do. God made me for something different. My dad couldn't talk in front of a group of people to save his life. I've never shut up. <laughs> We're made differently. God had a different purpose for us. Don't make your kids be something you want them to be if they don't want to be it. Push them. Long for them to excel. But find their niche. And let them be successful in what they're good at. Don't make unrealistic expectations. Number eight, do I understand that parenting and living is an exercise in faith? I sure hope so. <laughs> it is an exercise in faith. I mean, when you're there and that baby is born and you got all these ideas and all these plans, but at the end of the day, their life is in the hands of God. Now, let's be honest. It's hard for you to let them to go off the first day of the school. It's hard for you to let them walk across the stage at graduation. It's hard for you to let them go off to college. It's hard for you to give them away to some guy to be their husband. But it's an exercise in faith. And at every one of those moments, you ought to pray, Lord, that's your child first, mine second. They're yours. Their days are yours. Their call is yours. I'm just here to guide and to help. Next question. Have I laid my kids on the altar and given them wholly to the Lord? Have I laid my kids on the altar and given them wholly? to the Lord and then the last one am I raising spiritually tough kids who can face the bullies of this world or am I raising soft saints who can only function in a protective environment am I raising spiritually tough kids who can face the bullies of this world or am I raising soft saints who can only function in a protective bubble. Now, we don't have time tonight. I've already gone long. We don't have time tonight to get into the rest of this message, so we're going to let it end there. I just want to end with an illustration.
several years ago, I was in another state preaching a meeting, and Ken Jenkins was with me in that meeting. And a family was visiting the church. It was a Bible conference, and a family was visiting the church. It was new to the community, and it was on a Tuesday night. In fact, I think it was me and Bill Stafford and Ken Jenkins. And uh, nice family. I think they had six or eight kids, well-behaved, very polite kids. But here's what the 24-year-old said. She said to Ken, would you pray for me? I'm 24. All I do is take care of my younger brothers and sisters, and I have no friends in this world. Can I tell you something? God didn't give that family, that daughter, to raise all the other kids. That daughter needs to have a life that God's called her to have. And she is a godly, miserable young lady. She's 24. She shares a room with a couple of her sisters. And she babysits all the time. She has no life. Just my opinion. I think God put her on this earth for something more than that. It's not that her parents don't have the health. It's not that her parents don't have the means. It's that they've forgotten that they are to raise an eaglet to push it out of the nest so it can fly on its own. And that's what we're supposed to do. Everything God ever created understands you raise your offspring to fly to soar, to grow, to hunt, to do what they were created to do. Only, it seems, human beings don't get that. I have a daughter four hours away, married. They struggle financially, trying to make ends meet. I have a daughter about to leave to go to South Africa, 17 hours away. This is killing my frequent flyer miles. But I would rather have one in L.A. and one in South Africa in the will of God than living next door to me and not be in the will of God. That makes it a little harder on me. It makes it very exciting for them. And so what God does with them is his choice. I've done most of the parenting I'm going to do in my life with them. Now I'm just there to pray and to encourage, to help when I can, and not always stick my nose in their business. It's a pretty good arrangement. Somebody asked Terry and I how we liked empty nests, and we said it took us five minutes to get used to it. I'll tell you, I love my kids. I love, they're not perfect. They're no way either one of them are perfect. They don't have perfect mom and dad. I love them. But I'm proud of what they are becoming. Because maybe it was because of the way I was raised. Maybe it was because of my bad experiences. 
I hope it was because of the Lord that we wanted to raise our girls to be godly young women that if we were here or not here, they would make the right choices. Now I want to ask you something. Isn't that really what you want for your kids? That whether you're here or not here, that the heritage of faith continues in your children. So we ought to pray to that end. And we ought to remember that even those that are away from the Lord, the last page has not been written yet. They can come back. So, I just saved you from the last 20 minutes of this message, and you're going, thank God, it's already been too long now. But I hope, I hope this helped. If what I said bears witness with your spirit and with the Word of God, then take it and use it. If you recoil at it, take it to the Word and see if it's consistent. If it's not consistent with the Word, then ignore it. It was just my thoughts preaching a sermon on parenting with a 30-year-old and a 27-year-old that I've watched go through all the different phases of life. And I'm grateful for every moment. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in this church we would have a generation of warriors, not wimps. Boys and girls, and children, young people, college students would stand firm and stand strong and stand up and be examples to their generation. Lord, help us to guide them on that path, but not to smother them along it. Give us wisdom about when to hold on and when to let go. Give us discernment. Because we live in an evil and perverse generation. But this evil and perverse generation needs a people set apart not just physically by external signs like the Nazarites. Samson was set apart externally. He had the look, but he didn't have the life. He didn't have the heart. And so, Lord, we know that while there was peace after every other judge and deliverer, there was no peace after Samson because he never did do what he was put on the earth to do. And that was to truly set the people free from their enemies. Because he fell into sin and because he denied your purpose for his life and played at the fringes of being set apart, he blew his life. So, Lord, I pray that... Uh, we will be parents and grandparents that don't raise statistics and casualties. We raise soldiers and conquerors in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. amen. We're going to, um, is Renee out there? Is she already out? Where is she?
You want to do the last part of something happens as we leave? You're doing something else? Okay, we're going to send you out to the, not the record table, or the cassette table, or the eight-track table, or the album table. We're going to send you out to the CD table. All right? And uh, they're going to sing us out. Pray for us as we leave on Thursday. Pray for Candy Fest on Wednesday. God bless you. Good night.